Support for this podcast comes from you and Yankwich & Associates, since 1997 working to provide expert, responsive service in intellectual property law to biotech, biopharmaceutical, and biochemical companies worldwide. More information at yankwich.com. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. If you recently buckled your seatbelt or uh, walked a kid to the bus stop or maybe put money into a savings account because you're worried you're not going to have enough money for retirement, then you know that a lot of the choices that we make every day are motivated in some part by fear. We're taking precautions. This week, we're going to take a look at some of our fears, why we have them, and then whether they make any sense. Juliet Kayam used to work in the Department of Homeland Security. She's written a lot about fear and managing it in her book, Security Mom. She also hosts a podcast of the same name that is produced here at WGBH. Juliet, thank you very much for coming into the studio. Thank you for uh, having me. So in your experience, you've thought a lot about security. What situations, what fears do you feel like get hyped, get overblown, that maybe... We should not be as fearful about as we are. Right. So if you just look, if you just deal with numbers and statistically, our focus uh, from the safety and security perspective on, say, ISIS, right, as compared to gun violence seems particularly out of whack, right? The chances of you or someone you know dying or being killed or the victim of ISIS terrorism is so negligible, I can't even give it a percentage point as compared to, say, gun violence in America. But there's explanations for it. One is, I think, we have accepted as a society a certain level of gun violence. Uh, It's hard to admit that, but we clearly have because we're not demanding or there's not changes to gun control laws as there were, say, to seatbelt laws and others in in other dangerous instrument of the past that where people used to die a lot more often than they do now. And also the purposeful targeted aspects of terrorism give it a unique place in our psychology and our sense of stability and our sense of protecting our children. Uh, And so while it is completely out of whack, it's statistically, I kind of also get it, right? I mean, I do. I I get it. Now, how much of that is the media? Because, you know, you talk about gun violence. Well, a lot of people who die violently by guns, and it could be suicide or or homicide every year, they don't get very much attention in the media. So it does happen. Um, I think there's something like 30,000 deaths a year by guns, but we don't hear about most of them. Whereas when somebody is killed by ISIS, especially an American, we hear about it around the clock. Where's that on the chicken egg spectrum? Is that us being concerned and the media reflecting that back to us or them making us more concerned than we should be? Well, it's probably both, you know, and look, I, 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 have a media role, so I'm probably culpable in some of this, that you that that the interest in something that is terrorism and specifically uh, Islamic terrorism, right, is of, of ISIS as compared to, say, uh, some guy who walks into a bar and just kills a bunch of people, sort of your average mass shooting, is particularly acute. Some of that is the legacy of 9-11, and some of it is that sense of defensiveness and concerns. Some of it is that that sort of purposeful aspects that you are being targeted because you are an American um, as compared to targeted just because you happen to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. So and I and I, you know, 
we're about 15 years after 9-11, so I've had a lot of time to think about a you know, profession I've been in a, a very long time before 9-11. I was in counterterrorism and thinking about people's irrational fears. And I've come to terms with needing to respect the irrationality. I know that sounds weird. I mean, it's the government's responsibility to try to minimize the fear, minimize the hysteria, people be responsible with information that they have. Uh, but I also think we need to be sympathetic uh, to people's rational fear of, for example, losing a child. Mm -hmm. So you can tell me, you know, my child's chances of dying from ISIS are 0.0001%. But if that percentage is my kid, that's Mm -hmm. that's an existential crisis. And so uh, part of what we need to do, what those of us and and others who are in government need to do about counterterrorism and homeland security efforts is sort of accept that there's going to be a heightened concern and then what can we do to sort of guide it or prepare people for the potential for for anything that can go bad. When you uh, look at polls of Americans, a big chunk of them think that they really do have the potential to be a target of terrorism, that it is a really big threat to America. Is terrorism the only thing that people are fearful about that is in some ways totally out of proportion yeah. to what they should be fearful it's about? It's such a good question. And I should you know, I should say that, you know, these sort of these numbers for terrorism are so skewed. I mean, you know, forty percent of of Americans think they might know someone who's gonna get killed by ISIS. I mean, it's just so ridiculous. And and they break on gender ground. So more women will feel uh, threatened by terrorism than than men. Mm. Uh, and so they really do have a gender distinction in the polling. I think public health fears also, I think this also gets to children, uh, whether it's Ebola or now Zika, um, and before that H1N1 and SARS, really do have a different psychological impact on not only the population, but on how government has to respond to it because of the population's concerns. But terrorism still stands out there as mm-hmm. as unique. You know, Homeland Security and, and, and counterterrorism really... It wasn't born in 9-11. Obviously, the tragedy of 9-11 sort of created this network and enterprise and uh, uh, called Homeland Security. Uh, But I remind people that 2005 was really a course correction, and that was Hurricane Katrina. For people in my field, including counterterrorism, to look at an apparatus of response that could not save an American city from drowning, you realized, oh my gosh, we were too focused on one particular scary thing that was low probability, maybe high consequence, and maybe we should uh, look at all hazards approach to thinking about our safety and security. This is Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Juliet Kayyem. She's a former official at the Department of Homeland Security and author of the book Security Mom. So let me follow up here on that governmental piece. And even broader than terrorism, so it could be addressing any fear that should be a real fear and that the government should address, how have you seen, like, how good do you think the government is at knowing which fears they can do something about and should do something about, and then doing those things? So there's a tremendous amount of focus in government. I think we've gotten pretty good at this. We have been good at thwarting or stopping or, you know, trying to uh, postpone, right? A a postponed attack is good news. Um, What we call low probability, high consequence events, uh, because that's where you're going to get mass casualties. Mm -hmm. So whether it's, you know, uh, ISIS directed or other events like that. And while Orlando and San Bernardino were 
horrible mass casualty events. They just were not the magnitude that we really, really do worry about. And it's nuclear, radiological, those kinds of things. But I think what we're getting better at is, or the government's getting better at, is accepting that it's not just government's responsibility. So there's a lot more focus on supporting, at least from the federal government perspective, state and local capacity. We call it the Homeland Security Enterprise now, engaging NGOs, communities, faith-based organizations, getting them engaged with their own capability of minimizing risk. You saw it with Hurricane Matthew. Right. You know, um, Most of the Florida shelters were actually churches. And so they're thinking about ways in which you can engage. I think what we've gotten horrible, or we're still horrible at, is talking about our vulnerabilities as being a consequence and not always a bad consequence of the kind of society that we actually have come to expect and enjoy and nurture. And whether it's, it's you know, respect for civil rights, sometimes noddingly, I'll admit that, um, or a mass transit system. So if you live in New York, and if you live in New York, you have already accepted a level of vulnerability that cannot be brought down to zero if you want your subway system to to act as it does now. Right, right. Um, I think as a mother of three, and you certainly know as a mother, you know, my what I call my God-given right to go on Amazon.com. I'm a member of Amazon Prime, <laughs> my favorite. It's people said you belong to clubs. I was like, yes, Amazon Prime. But um <laughs> Uh, you know, and, and you know, because you've forgotten the snow gloves or something, and it comes the next day. Think about that as as the vulnerability of you being able to go online. So think of the cyber network, order something with your credit card. For the most part, it's it's safe. It's in a warehouse. It gets to your front door. So think of the, you know, whether it's by air or sea or land, right. and it gets to your front incredible door. incredible coordination. Think about it yeah. and the levels of vulnerability that have to exist in it for the kind of flow that we expect. I can talk about it now because I'm out of government, and I have come to recognize that in some ways, having been in government, I, I was essentially selling people uh, a storyline that I knew we couldn't satisfy, right? That that vulnerability was a sign of failure, right? It's not always a sign of failure. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's a sign of accepting one or the other side of a balance that we're trying to maintain. You know, if you look at big, broad, 30,000 feet up statistics, you see that fewer people are being killed in wars now than never throughout human history, that, you know, health, public health is is better than it's ever been. In some ways, we should be the least fearful. But you also see that people are indeed very fearful, especially right now in the U.S. What to you is going on? So people who are younger won't remember sort of probably how shocking 9-11 really was for this nation. And I think because we had stratified or divided the world into foreign threats and domestic peace, and it always was over there, and the battlefields were over there, and the the boys we sent to war were over there. And I think that even though we know that the various threats are close, I think we. I think that's what's hard for us to to narrate to ourselves that oh, it's here too, because wars, whether you know whether it's I, the war on terror, I hate that term, but whether it's ISIS or climate change or viruses, whatever, it's all here. Mm-hmm. And so it's, I think it's a consequence of the globalization of both information and threats, and they hit us personally in ways that they used to not. Right. So so last thing here, when when people look back in years and years, you know, and, and look back at 2016 and 2020, 
and they have a better sense of like, oh, yeah, that's where they were on that trajectory. You know, mm-hmm. I, I can see where it went because, you know, I'm, I'm living 20 years in the yeah. future or whatever. Um, what will be the things that make sense to be fearful of now and like over the next few years? Do you think, you oh, know, when you sort uh, of look so back? That's so easy to answer. And uh, is climate change. I mean, it is. I know people make fun of uh, of what Bernie Sanders, people don't make fun of, but, you know, the, the Bernie Sanders got attacked for saying climate change was the biggest threat. I think he's... Right. Biggest is uh, ISIS is a tactical, immediate problem. And its solution is about both, you know, war and killing and and intelligence efforts and, and changing hearts and minds. But we will. There's no question in my mind. We will, like we did with Nazism, like we've done with other ideology, violent ideologies. We will not end ISIS. But we will sufficiently destroy it that it will become something that we're not worried about. So climate change, though, and why it's not a progressive, just a progressive issue, I should say. So when someone says climate change is the biggest existential threat, they don't mean like because you're going to get wet. What they mean is, and this is why the Defense Department and the State Department and the Department of Homeland Security all rank climate change as a major threat, is because the movement of people and the fight for resources are why wars are fought over over history. And that's what we anticipate, whether it's the Arctic, where I've been many times, where we basically are creating you know, a new ocean. Let me tell you, the Arctic is going to be uh, navigable, you know, 24-7, 365, very, very soon. Um, and there's or, already it's our, fights over that. Yeah, there's and, fights, and know, we have no governance structure for yeah. that uh, to um, islands that are— you know, going to not be able, you're not going to be able to live there to drought in Africa or even the Arab Spring to how we live on the eastern seaboard and uh, and our capacity to live as and build as we do. That's why a long-term threat like that may not keep us up at night, but it's why the national security apparatus is very much focused on the warming earth as a, not just as a you know, green issue or a mother nature issue. It's actually about defense and national security. Juliet Kayyem is the former assistant secretary for intergovernmental affairs at the Department of Homeland Security. She's also author of the book Security Mom. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. I want security without it. If you're not near your radio some week, but you still really want to hear the show, our podcast lives in iTunes or wherever you browse for podcasts. And you can also listen right off our website, innovationhub.org. A lot of us throw around the word catastrophe a little too casually, as in it would be a catastrophe if those two sat next to each other at Thanksgiving and started talking politics. Then you've got bigger, more certifiable catastrophes like losing your job. And you've got really big catastrophes like hurricanes and terrorist attacks. But there are also catastrophes that happen on a scale that is kind of unimaginable, like this one. A very large rock slammed into the Gulf of Mexico and did, in fact, set off an 
utterly catastrophic explosion that probably blew a hole in the atmosphere and did a lot of other terrible things immediately. Annalee Newitz is a science writer who has looked at what catastrophes of the past can tell us about catastrophes of the future. So the one you just heard about was 65 million years ago. And it's famous not just for being part of a mass extinction, but for playing a key role in wiping out the dinosaurs. In Earth's history, we've had five mass extinctions where 75 percent or more species died out uh, over the course of many hundreds of thousands of years. And all of those happened before humans were around. And they were all things that we could never stop even today. Newitz thinks, though, that humans, or maybe a select few humans, could outlast these events. We've got smarts and we've got tools. But, but. It's going to be terrible. And it's going to be Uh, in some sense, more terrible than other mass extinctions because we've had such a profound role in causing this one to happen. Uh, But some of us will make it through, and the conditions that we're under while we're surviving are going to be pretty horrific. And here's the scariest slash most hopeful part of this story. Newitz and lots of scientists believe we're in the middle of a sixth mass extinction. So remember she talked about there being five already. And get this. All of these uncontrollable, horrific events had one thing in common, which is that they destroyed the planet by changing the climate very quickly, changing the atmosphere. And the life forms that died out almost always died out because there was an initial event that either heated the planet up, cooled it down, loaded the atmosphere with carbon. And then when keystone species started dying out, that meant that there were knock-on effects in other species that survived because of those keystone species started dying out. And so the mass extinction that we're probably in right now is similar in that way. Certainly it wasn't caused by an asteroid strike or a megavolcano, but it is leading to climate change. Newitz is the tech culture editor at Ars Technica, and she's the author of the book Scatter, Adapt, and Remember, How Humans Will Survive a Mass Extinction. And she says that extinctions are only fully witnessed when you're looking in the rearview mirror. But the trend line isn't our friend. Evidence has been mounting for several decades at this point that we're seeing things that are all signals of mass extinction. So one easy example is that extinction levels among land animals are much higher than would be typical. So there's always some creatures that are dying out. That's just how it goes. That's how evolution works. You're never going to have a time when no species die out. But there is a, a kind of a background level of extinction that you expect to see. And we're far, far above that among land animals. And a number of studies uh, in prominent scientific journals have verified that. So we know that that's happening. We also know that carbon levels in the atmosphere are rising and that temperatures are fluctuating in ways that they haven't for thousands of years, if not you know, tens of thousands of years. So we know that the carbon cycle on the planet has been perturbed. We just don't know exactly in a sort of perfect uh, ability. We, we don't have a perfect ability to predict exactly how that's going to go. But right, how these dominoes past- are going to fall. Right, which domino will fall first. But what we do know from looking at the fossil record is that pretty much any time you perturb the carbon cycle, you do see a mass extinction. And mass extinctions start with lots of extinctions, and and that leads to more extinctions. So there's a lot of signs. And um, the question really is, you know, what are we going to do about it? Because we know it's happening. 
So is this the way then an apocalyptic event feels? Because if we left both of our studios today, you're in San Francisco and I'm in Boston. If we left them and we went to a fancy hotel, we'd see people having fancy meals. And if we went to a park, we'd see kids running around. Is that the way that a mass extinction can feel when it's happening? Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that makes it so hard to prevent a mass extinction because they're slow. And one of the definitions of mass extinction is that you really don't know whether it's reached mass levels for a million years because you have to wait a million years to see just how many species die out. So, you know, in retrospect, our, our you know, in a million years, uh, our progeny may look back and say, wow, yeah, that was a really bad one. Um, but as we're experiencing it, we're just seeing small changes like the weather is getting slightly more unpredictable. Uh, there are slightly fewer amphibians or actually quite a few uh, fewer amphibians. But we're not seeing something that we would expect from from science fiction movies or right, from right. fantasy where a giant fireball just wipes everything out. Right, right. One day everybody is going to work and the next day... You know, you're sort of living in a deathscape where where there's nothing going on and you're picking berries off the trees. That That's what I think people think of when they think of extinction. Yeah, and I think that's just a very kind of handy allegory in the world of stories for talking about what an extinction is or for talking about what an apocalypse is. But, of course, real life is never as tidy or as simple as a story. So when you talk to experts about what's happening to us now and thinking about this as, uh, you know, that we're in this sort of moment, not of apocalypse, but of, wow, you know, really defining um, period of extinction in history. Give me a sense, or do people or do scientists have a sense? How does this play out? So right now, there's a lot of different ways that this period gets defined. I like the fact that a lot of geologists are now calling this the Anthropocene, which is just to say the human age, right. because humans have had such a profound impact on the environment. We've left behind plastics that will probably endure in the geological record for millions of years. Um, we've left behind... Um, uh, residue from nuclear blasts that will stay around for a very long time. And so there is this kind of marker where we enter the Anthropocene. And if we continue to release emissions from fossil fuels, if we continue to um, do industrial processing without any thought for environmental impact the way we are now, what's going to happen is going to look kind of like mass starvation. You're not going to be seeing zombies. You're not going to be seeing things like the environment gets so dirty that people are, you know, coughing to death. Although that might happen in certain pockets, certain urban pockets. Um, you might start to see, you know, really horrific uh, results of carbon loading in the atmosphere. But what's mm. really the main impact is going to be that we're going to wreck our farmland. We're going to wreck our ability to grow the plants that we like to eat because the habitats have been so transformed by climate change. And it can be transformed in all kinds of ways. We're going to have droughts. We're going to have rain in places where we didn't have it before. So we're going to have flooding. And these are all natural results of uh, carbon loading and temperatures rising in the environment. And so 
we're going to see things like food riots and we're going to see um, people scrambling for water in places that used to get rainfall every year. And so it will it'll feel like a social and economic collapse as much as it feels like an environmental collapse. But these social effects really are just the result of making it harder and harder for us to live in this habitat on the planet because we evolved to live in a, a much cooler habitat with a little bit more oxygen uh, than is typical of the Earth's environment. And so now we're changing that uh, habitat and making it hard to live. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with science writer Annalee Newitz, author of the book Scatter, Adapt, and Remember How Humans Will Survive a Mass Extinction. So how long does the timeline that we're on feel like to you? I mean, are we talking about a thousand years? Are we talking about a hundred years? You know, it's a moving target. We're getting better and better data all the time about um, what that timeline is going to be. And of course, it depends on a lot of political decisions that we're making now about things like fossil fuel use and, um, you know, emissions of uh, things like methane, uh, which are now being curbed. So in a worst case scenario, a lot of these effects are going to be felt by the end of the century. And in a best case scenario, if we can just all start to be angels tomorrow and switch to alternative forms of energy that are carbon neutral or carbon negative, you know, then we're still going to be looking at at least a thousand years of perturbation. It's not going to be perfect. Uh, things are not going to get back to normal for a while because the planet's environment is a very complicated machine. And once you've messed it up or once you've, again, perturbed it, uh, as geologists like to say, it really takes a while before the wobble starts to stabilize again. So in other words, we're kind of screwed for a long time, but we could certainly be a lot less screwed. We really do have an opportunity now to change things for the better and to make a future where we're not dying of starvation, a future where we have some problems, we have to deal with uh, in, you know, um, habitat remediation, but we're not looking at mass death of all of the animals and plants that we have grown to love over our 100,000 years of evolution. Okay, so it sounds like if there's a catastrophe in the offing, we pretty much have caused it. Has there ever been a time when a singular species ha has had that much power, has done so much to change the world around them? Why, yes. <laughs> um, we share Good that to distinction. know that we can yeah. share the blame with somebody. I can't wait to hear we, who. Yeah. So um, so about two billion years ago, there arose a species that now we call blue-green algae, but it's also known as cyanobacteria. It's a bacteria that photosynthesizes, which means for the first time in Earth's history, when these little guys came along, they were actually producing free oxygen as a byproduct of their digestive process or of their energy harvesting process. Hmm. So basically... They were farting out oxygen into an environment that had been, before that, very, very low in oxygen, high in methane and, and a lot of other gases that were great for the life forms that were on the planet at the time. But over time, cyanobacteria were just an incredibly successful species, just like humans. They invaded every niche on the planet and produced so much oxygen that they absolutely transformed the atmosphere to one that now we consider to be breathable. And so the very first 
horrific climate disaster uh, of pollution and altering the atmosphere on this planet uh, was the oxygen apocalypse. And it you made things great for us, but it did cause an entire class of creatures to die. But the difference between humans and algae, obviously, is that we know what we're doing. So we have a chance to change what we're doing and maintain the planet um, with the environment that is uh, conducive to human survival and survival of all the species we depend on to live. And when you said before that, you know, humans have tools, I mean, they, they have in many ways things that set them apart from most other species. Um, and therefore... It's likely that humans would survive, even if something pretty traumatic happened, and, and you, you've described something pretty traumatic that's happening. Do, do you have a sense of what kinds of people would survive and why, and like how they would get through it when maybe other people didn't? Well, that's a good question. It's hard to say what kind of people would survive because I think all kinds of people would survive. Huh. I think okay. the way that humans will survive is by banding together into communities and creating habitats and shelters and food sources that can sustain us. And I think you've got to look at it kind of like uh, how settlers survived when they first came to the Americas. Like imagine uh, 17,000 years ago, you're a group of people coming to the Americas for the first time from, you know, your, your people came from Asia, you're coming over to the Americas. It's a, it's a land that has no people in it, nothing, right. uh, nothing like what you knew before when you lived in villages. And you're having to start from scratch. And so you form tribes and you form groups of people that support each other, uh, helping each other with shelter, helping each other with food and childcare. So that's how we will survive. Hmm. And I think that the existence will be, in many cases, quite rough. I mean, much like the first people who came to the Americas, uh, you know, people may have to, if the environment gets bad enough, we may have to live underground. Um, we're going to be doing things like eating fungus and eating bugs. Um, you know, if we really do ruin our uh, ability to do large-scale agriculture there's going to be a lot of food that is on the menu that you might not really expect on your menu today. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, bugs are pretty tasty. I want to stick up for bugs. Mm. But uh, think of it as hardship rather than total death. Right. And, of course, you know, there will – but, of course, there will also be a lot of death. I mean, you're looking at, uh, you know, billions of people possibly starving um, or dying of – uh, pandemics that take hold because people aren't getting enough nutrition. Um, it's pretty common that you get uh, really bad pandemics when um, people don't have enough to eat or they have been deprived of shelter and things like that. So it'll be crappy. <laughs> <laughs> Not really something to to look forward to. Um, no. What do you What do you feel like the major lesson is that you've learned uh, from examining all these instances of extinction? The major lesson I've learned is that we need to be pragmatic about looking at the future and not spend too much time blaming ourselves and flagellating ourselves for making the mistakes that got us here. Because dwelling on the past and dwelling on who did what wrong, which corporation was most evil, it's not going to help us in the future. We need to just accept the fact that things are messed up and 
now our new scientific project, our new energy project, needs to be fixing that and sustaining the environment in a way that's livable. So it almost sounds like um, you know family therapy for the planet. It's right, like, right. All right. Let's we can't just do anything about the past. You have to right. move forward now. <laughs> <laughs> we got to move on. We, you know, we need to obviously if there's bad actors that are corporations that are particularly vile in how they're polluting, we want to stop them. Mm-hmm. But I think at a certain point, you know, we we have laws to stop them. We we need to uh, enforce those laws. And then we need to say, all right, moving on. Humans are not evil. We make mistakes, but we can fix them. And like, let's not let's not blame all of humanity and say that this is just basically a problem with humans and maybe the planet would be better off without us because humans are like any other animal you know sometimes we poop in the wrong place and (laughs) you know like and then you kind of move on and you say all right well I won't poop there again I am sorry about that Uh, so I think that's kind of where we're at um, as a species and that we really need to be just maybe a little bit more forgiving of ourselves as long as we are pushing toward uh, trying to make things better and not make them worse. Annalie Newitz is author of Scatter, Adapt, and Remember, How Humans Will Survive a Mass Extinction. She's also the tech culture editor at Ars Technica. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, thanks for having me. On our website, we've got a link to an impressive drawing by Randall Monroe, who has been on the show before and does the webcomic XKCD. He looks at how the Earth's temperature has changed over the last 20,000 years. This is a huge drawing. It's worth checking out. We've got the link for you at innovationhub.org. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Carrie Fowler has a job that's so unusual I didn't even know it was a thing you could do. I guess you could say he saves lives, but not one at a time, like a doctor or a few every week. It's more like none at all. And then one day, somewhere in the future, he might save thousands or hundreds of thousands of lives. So here's how he does it. He preserves seeds. And here's why he preserves seeds. As more and more people have moved away from farming and into cities, The food that we eat is grown by fewer people, by more big corporations. And what they want is food that's standard looking and standard acting. So if you grow apples, you might want some that are big and red. If you grow wheat, you want wheat that's easy to turn into bread. And then over time, food gets more uniform. But once in a while, a drought will come along or a pest will eat all your wheat. And all of a sudden, farmers will wish that they had the old seeds back but they don't because they weren't as awesome and so they kind of toss them in favor of better seeds. And that's where a guy who has spent decades preserving thousands of seeds steps into the frame. Carrie Fowler is the former executive director of the Crop Trust. He's now a senior advisor to the trust. Carrie, thanks for being here. Thank you. So you've talked about the idea of preserving diversity among seeds and that being incredibly important. I wonder why. I I mean, what kind of keeps you up at night here in terms of thinking, gee, if we lost certain seeds or if we lost uh, the diversity among seeds, this could happen? Every time we we lose a variety of of one of our agricultural crops, we 
potentially lose all of the un unique, or we do lose, all of the unique traits that that variety might have had. And amongst those traits might be disease or pest resistance or uh, adaptation to very high temperatures or drought or whatever. And those are the kind of things that we need in the future. Um, we know that um, that we're getting great fluctuation and warming in temperatures and that's creating a whole cascade of challenges for agriculture. So every time you lose a bit of diversity, you lose those options and you lose them forever. How often is it, do you think, that we lose like a variety of apple or a variety of rice or whatever? I can't prove it, but you know, I've been working in this field for about 40 years and my gut level reaction to that question is we lose diversity every day. And I, I tell people that this is not like losing your car keys or losing your cell phone. This is like losing something that's just never going to come back again. It's extinction. Hmm. And, and that's a, you know, that's a whole different kind of ball game. And why do we lose it every day? Because if there are people like you out there who are collecting seeds and trying to maintain them for a time that, oh, gosh, we've got a beetle and it's infecting all the, you know, the wheat or whatever, and, and we've got to use something that's a, a strain of wheat that's resistant. If we've got people like that who've been collecting seeds for a long time, then why is it that we lose diversity every day or every week or whatever? First of all, I don't think we have too many people out there collecting like this. You know, the uh, United States Department of Agriculture used to have a full-time plant collector. I don't think they do anymore and don't think they have had for a long, long time. We lose um, diversity in two different places, um, in two different ways. And we lose it um, out in the field, particularly in developing countries, which is where most of our major crops originated and where they've had the longest amount of time to um, to evolve with the environments and the cultures. You see a great deal of diversity of potatoes in the Andes. That's where potatoes come from, or some of our um, food grains like wheat in, in the Mideast, uh, rice in, in Asia and China. And what's happened in those places is that modern varieties, high-yielding varieties, have come in, and farmers have made rational decisions to replace their traditional varieties, low-yielding in many cases, with modern high-yielding varieties. Mm. And that's helped build food security. Sure. But the downside of that is that we haven't had programs in place that would collect that diversity that they were growing before they cease growing it and before it becomes extinct. So that's one way in which we lose diversity. And the other way is that if we do collect it, if we have collected it and we put it into seed banks, which is kind of a fancy word for freezers, uh, to conserve it long term, bad things can happen to seed banks. They're in buildings and so you can have fires and floods and people can make stupid mistakes and governments can cut funding and sometimes they get in the way of wars. Right. And so you can, if you have a unique sample of seeds in a seed bank and something happens in that building, well then poof, there it goes. You know, one thing that's incredible to me is how people have put even their lives on the line to protect seeds. I mean, there's that amazing story of um, a couple of scientists protecting seeds during the uh, siege of Leningrad, and they starved to death with food near them because they were protecting something. Absolutely right. 
going to that seed bank and now what's now called St. Petersburg is sort of like going to Mecca in a way. It's mm. a it's a pilgrimage. And during the siege of Leningrad, which, you know, to remind you, was was about 900 days long and a couple hundred thousand people died. There they were sitting in the seed bank surrounded by the Nazis. And there were about 13 people um, towards the latter part of the war uh, who were staff members of that institute who starved to death rather than boil up and eat the seeds. The the rice breeder, the person who was curating this large rice collection, died sitting at his desk with bags of rice on the desk. That's incredible. I I think it's just an amazing story of, of heroism. Uh, I have to ask, did those, did that rice, did the other things that were being protected during the siege of Leningrad, did they get out? Well, they survived the war, basically. Okay. So, um, yes, I mean, that's a, that even today is an important collection, though I would, would hasten to add that there are very few governments in the world, and that's one of them, that really appreciates what they have. So there are very few seed banks in the world that are adequately funded. And that's another reason why you need um, more than one copy of, of each of those seed collections, just in case something goes wrong. You helped found a huge uh, bunker-like seed vault up in Norway, uh, in the Arctic Circle. If I went there, what would I see? Tell me what it's like. Uh, that particular facility, the Svalbard Global Seed Vault, is really different from your normal working seed bank. But all seed banks, we often just call them gene banks, are, are large freezers. So this particular one is built at 78 degrees north and is built inside of a mountain. So we're about 130 yards inside the mountain. It's naturally freezing. It's a few degrees below freezing. Right, so right. once you get all the way back in the mountain, you've gone through some security doors and all kinds of things. So you you get into a big room that's about I don't know, ninety, maybe ninety feet long, about thirty feet wide, and about fifteen feet high. And it's been chiseled out of solid rock, and inside, deathly cold. It sounds <laughs> yes. like the. Um you know, secret home of some sort of superhero. Like, this is where they would hang out when they were plotting their comeback. Yes. Yes. I, <laughs> I, there have been a couple of novels written that are along those lines. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Well, there you There's go. some films, I think, um, that are in the works. But, um, no, it does look like a, a James Bond's kind of setting. Mm -hmm. Yes. And uh, in this room, you have shelves... Um, with boxes and inside the boxes there are hundreds of packets of seed and it's all around um minus three minus four fahrenheit so it's a humbling it's a humbling experience i'll tell you, you ask what it's like it's humbling hmm. because you know you have to realize that agriculture is about 12 to fifteen thousand years and this is the product of 12 to fifteen thousand years of evolution all of which involved our ancestors, because these agricultural crops are domesticated. They co-evolved with human beings. So it's it's kind of a history of agriculture in a way, but it's also everything it can be in the future. And that's, that's humbling. I'm just trying to think about 
whether people think hard enough about the kinds of events that might lead us to draw on this history and to you know, use some of those seeds that have been cultivated for so long. And I mean, I guess we do ponder terrorist attacks. We do ponder the use of a nuclear weapon or, or something so big that you might have to go to a seed bank and essentially get whole new seeds because the ground was ruined. Yes, um, and I'm, I'm not sure I could say it any better than you've just said it, but there is a, there's an interesting um, little side story to this, and that is that we know that years that are unusually hot are years in which there are, of course, problems with agricultural production. And in those years, food prices will go up. And those years are highly, highly correlated with incidents of war and civil strife around Mm -hmm. the world. In fact, if you go back to Arab Spring, you'll find a year that was unusually bad in terms of agricultural production in the Mideast. So if you were thinking long-term about not just food security, but about national security, and what kind of resources the United States and other governments were going to have to put into hopefully trying to build a more peaceful world, then this would be an investment you would want to make. Yeah. Lastly, I've got to ask you, are there any foods where so much diversity has been lost that you sometimes think to yourself, boy, we are one you know, infestation or something away from just completely losing the crop. And, you know, people can't imagine it, but it could easily happen. It's only a matter of time. Uh, I don't I don't wish doom on any particular crop, but, uh, um, you know, there are a couple of crops that are that are in trouble. Mm-hmm. Let's put it that way. Okay. Um, year in and year out, bananas are are. Our problem. There are a couple of major diseases striking bananas. It's a, by the way, it's not just a nice dessert crop that you find in the or dessert food that you find in the supermarket here. It's a staple crop for a couple hundred million people in Africa, and it's about the fourth or fifth most economically important crop in the world. Wow. There's also a major disease, um, wheat stem rust, that's striking wheat right now. This is a mutation of a disease that's uh, mentioned in the Bible. It's associated with famine in the Bible. It could be associated again with that. Um, When it arose in Uganda in 1999, there was no resistance in any modern variety in the field. So plant scientists have been racing to screen gene bank, seed bank collections to find genes that might offer some resistance to that particular disease which spreads by spores in the air. And and to go back to your the point you made about bananas, uh, do you think there's a real possibility that like 5, 10, 20 years from now, we're just not going to have bananas in the grocery store anymore? There, there has been, I'm not a banana expert, but there has been, I know there's been some speculation for some years that, uh, that bananas were so, that the commercial form of banana, the varieties you see in the store, so uniform and so vulnerable to these diseases that, um, you know, its days were numbered. Hmm. And there, by the way, there are not many banana breeders in the world. So you sort of, uh, there are only about six people who are working on breeding new varieties of bananas. So you could always tell people that one way to look at it is, well, um, how many people depend on 
bananas, and that would be hundreds of millions and economically even more. Mm. But um, how many people do bananas depend on? And that answer is very few. Carrie Fowler is a senior advisor to the Crop Trust. Carrie, thank you so much. This was great. Sure. Thank you. On our Facebook page, we've got a great tour of the Global Seed Vault that we were talking about that's up near the Arctic Circle. You can find the tour at facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. By the way, after I was done talking to Kerry Fowler about seeds and about how they could save our lives, he mentioned that he lives on this little farm in upstate New York. And then he told me what he and his wife grow on that farm. My wife is growing, I think, over 500 different kinds of peppers this year. Whoa! And we probably have 50 or more melons, varieties of melons, um, probably somewhere between 50 and 100 different varieties of tomatoes. So we're, we did try to practice what we preach, let's put it that way. <laughs> you heard right, 500 kinds of peppers. His wife apparently is writing a book on them. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Sollinger and Caroline Lester, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help from Jonathan Gang. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub's environmental and sustainability reporting is provided by the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI, Public Radio International.